I just got back from Deadpool. And boy, your ah. arms are tired. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, good. When, when are you actually going to mark the beginning of the podcast? I mean, you don't just put it up from the start, do you? No, yeah, but you I'll, I'll find an appropriate. I'll find. Okay. I'll find an appropriate entry point. All right. Um, uh, so uh, our our roundtable today, uh, we we've got Derek Long. Hello. Uh, Derek <laughs> is is playing the role of Val McKee. Val, uh, huh? Yeah. We also have Nick Bester. Howdy. Who is playing the role of Ren McCormick? Many of these people are, as usual. Uh, we have Daniel Watson Jones. Hello. Who is voicing the character of Balto? The dog. I would love to know what this podcast looks like in your mind. And I, where you're doing this with all of these characters that you list every time. And I'm Stephen Claypool, list? and I'll be playing the part of Chip Diller because we're all playing Kevin Bacon characters today. <laughs> Val, uh, yeah. Val McKee was. He was. And Val McKee was Kevin Bacon's character in Tremors, so there you go, Derek. And Chip uh, Diller was in that uh, that uh, Kevin Bacon biopic of Phyllis Diller, right? That's correct. It was Mr. and Mrs. Diller, where they were spies. <laughs> but and, they're both played by Kevin Bacon. Yes. Uh, you're Ren McCormick. You're Footloose Kevin Bacon. I, don't, I did not remember what his name was. His name was Ren. Yep. Ren right. McCormick. The most naturalistic of names. Well, I, pi- I picked that one for you because I knew you were the one of us who, no offense to anyone, anyone else, but if you could get close to John Lithgow in any way, even if it were just him yelling at you not to dance, you'd take that opportunity. He would have to dance. I mean, if he got close to, to John Lithgow, he would be forced to dance. Yep. I, I mean, was, I would probably I be dancing s- if I were near John Lithgow to begin with. That's what I'm saying. You wouldn't be able to help but dance. I have to say, Stefan, I'm quite disappointed that none of us were Sebastian Kane, Kevin Bacon's character in yeah, Hollow Man. Man. That's true. <laughs> what about, uh, what's the name of his character from Wild Things? That's, that's the one I want to be, except not. Who's the most deplorable Kevin Bacon character? <laughs> Probably the one that one where he was the, uh, was the, the former, the reformed child murderer? Sleepers? Oh, what's in, in the Woodsman, I believe. Oh, isn't he like, isn't he like a recently released from prison? Yeah, I know what you're talking about. It. With a red ball. Murderer. There's a red ball on the poster. Yeah. In Wild Things, he is. He's an accused pedophile. rapist. In Wild Things, he is Ray Duquette. <laughs> God. <laughs> Sergeant Ray Duquette. Oh. Uh, yeah, he's an accused rapist in that one. In Hollow Man, he is a rapist. Uh... It, was he in Sleepers? Uh, he was in Flatliners. Maybe that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. Of. Is that like Sliders? Yeah, exactly. Not at all. Yeah, well, just, maybe it's, <laughs> a, a Flatliner is like a very, very small uh, turkey sandwich. <laughs> it's like a slider. Anyway, <laughs> I was thinking of the TV series. Oh, we know. <laughs> he, he flipped it around on you. Yeah, I O'Connell that shit. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, uh, why didn't you John Rhys-Davies it? <laughs> well, because I guess in, in Sliders, they, they switched O'Connell's partway through, didn't they? Because it started as Gary, and then it, then, uh, it became his brother, or his brother came into the show. What? Yeah, yeah it was after yeah, it left there, Fox, there so I stopped watching it. What? It's like, yeah. it's like Mr. Top. Do you know anything about yeah, Sliders? Yeah, exactly. Too many O'Connell's. 
Many yeah, but I, I I think there's uh there's an argument that uh th- this is Kevin Bacon's most deplorable character because he's a Nazi and then he's too evil for the Nazis. He's not a Nazi. He's just a you know a non-Nazi affiliated. He's just collaborating in a Nazi camp. What? <laughs> he's got his own office. No, he's, yeah, because I believe him when he says, I'm better than these guys. <laughs> I'm just going to yeah. kill your mom yeah. in front of you. Real easy to decry the Nazis after you've lost World War II, Kevin Bacon. No, he's in the, he did World War II that he does that. Like, when he's talking to little, uh, little Eric. Little Eric. Little Eric. Little Eric. Yeah. Uh, little these guys aren't you. Nazis. Come on, come on, dude. Let's not split hairs here. <laughs> yeah. So we're talking. We're talking. Uh, so, so, somewhat. Uh, I think. Say what the, you will about the tenets of national socialism, but at least it's an ethos. The top, I had to finish it. Okay, the topic that we are uh, circumlocuting at this point is. <laughs> I'd say we're kind of orbiting. You're bringing out the five dollar words here. I know. Is uh, X Men First Class the 2011 uh, Matthew Vaughn joint? Uh, <laughs> I don't think you can refer to that unless it's Spike Lee, right? Are you just are you trying to uh, are you trying to gentrify the word uh, uh, joint? Look, all I'm all I'm saying is I don't know if Matthew, Ma- Matthew Vaughn might be well, Matthew, might Matthew be Vaughn is the, is the British is the British Spike Lee. Um, no, so Matthew Vaughn, uh, who had been in the running to direct both Thor and uh, X Men: The Last Stand, finally gets his Marvel film. Uh, in this, and Brian Singer is back in the producer's chair after uh, a uh, misbegotten Superman movie. He was going to direct and then decided that he wanted to do Jack the Giant Killer instead. Good, good really call, Brian. Plus choices there, Brian. I'll, I'll go do my dream Wait. project. Jack the Giant Killer, was that the movie that had uh, the guy who plays Beast in this? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Nick Holt is everywhere. Did yep. you guys know that uh, David? I mean, I guess you you probably went over this on the X Men Origins Wolverine uh, uh, podcast. But did you know that was written by David Benioff, who also wrote the novel The Twenty Fifth Hour, which was the first Spike Lee movie to star a white person, I believe. Well, we didn't. Uh, we referred to him more no, by him, by Game of Thrones. <laughs> well, yes, I know, but everyone knows him for that now. I was just surprised that he wrote uh, everyone, those other two. Films. Everyone used to know him for writing The Twenty Fifth Hour. Well, okay, it's possible. The 25th Hour is a movie that I remember when it came out, I thought it looked kind of interesting when I was like 17 years old. And I remember going to Blockbuster and picking it up off the shelf and then putting it back down. I I bought it back then based on someone else's review, and I remember really liking it, but I think I have only watched it once. So I don't have any idea what's happened in the last 15 years. I liked it. Second best film. So we've uh, given our opening impressions of the 25th hour, but uh, <laughs> starting with uh, with Bester, what are your opening thoughts on X-Men First Class? Well, it's certainly much better than uh, Last Stand. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I remember, I remember when it came out, I was, you know, a little distraught over them beginning to make X-Men movies uh, after having kind of... Uh, Sent them pretty far into the ground with the last couple, uh, but yeah, no, I think it. Uh, I think it does a really good job, and um, you know, we end up sort of obsessing with the same handful of characters that we always do in the X Men movies. That we show a bit more diversity in terms of you know, 
which X-Men actually got oh. uh, more screen time. Uh, but yeah, no, on the whole, my, my first, uh, first reaction was both watching it the first time and watching it this time. was like, you know, it's a pretty good movie, and it certainly, certainly, you know, sort of writes the, the X-Men ship after uh, Last Stand and Wolverine Origins kind of set it akimbo a bit. Derek, your opening thoughts? Yeah, I remember when I first saw this in theaters, I didn't actually care for it all that much, but in retrospect, that it was for reasons that seem kind of minor and, and piddling now. Um, on, a, on a second viewing, I, I liked it a lot more. It's a film that um, narratively, I think it comes together like the first, the first act it seems like it's really kind of whirlwind and like in danger of going off the rails, but um, things kind of come together and the, you know, just in, in terms of the general approach to this world, you know, doing, doing this universe um, in the sixties explicitly as a kind of explicit setting rather than, you know, trying to evoke sort of, uh, you know, sixties X-Men or, um, you know, do it kind of uh, in a in a style in a purely sort of stylistic sense. Actually, setting it sort of in the '60s and and being um, really kind of that aesthetic, which is something that Matthew Vaughn does, um, and I think does pretty effectively in most of his films. Um, I, w- I wouldn't necessarily call any of his films like really subtle, but they're always they always have a very interesting. Um, style and and look to them and um i think that's definitely true in in this film dude your your first thoughts um i remember when i saw it in theaters i was relieved that it was better than the previous films but in the time since then i have like i never wanted to rewatch it and this time i watched it twice for the podcast and the first time i just i got less and less enthusiastic about it as the movie went on. And the third time, I actually got to like it a little more, but from a structural standpoint, like I like a lot of the filmmaking choices, but nothing about watching it as a movie compelled me. Um, And I just really, every time I've watched it, I really miss Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen. Um, And to a certain extent, Hugh Jackman, but mostly because I feel like there isn't one character in this that I really care about. Um, I, uh, but I mean, we'll we'll get to the specifics of that as we go on. But I don't know. I'm, I was disenchanted with it more and more as I watched it. Um, I mean, I don't know why they bothered to recast it. Like we saw uh, proof so well in uh, X Men Last Stand. We have the technology to make very convincing younger <laughs> just to age them down. <laughs> Imagine this entire movie with plasticine. Uh, <laughs> I, I um, I, I think that's interesting, dude. My thought as I came through this, and when I saw it the first time, I was pretty enthusiastic about it, and was a little less enthusiastic about it this time, although I still enjoyed it. I think that to some extent, what they needed to do with this film was just show that it was still possible to make a good and interesting X-Men film. And that's what I think it does really well, is Brian Singer does a very good job of resetting the universe and setting up... uh, Days of Future Past, mm-hmm. uh, 
So I feel like as a transitional film, it's amazing. It erases, uh, I mean, literally the first scene is the first scene of the first film again. Uh, And and then it does a good job of like then jumping to Charles as a child and bringing in Mystique uh, so that the the first, you know, all the characters that you're meeting at the beginning are characters you already know uh, and you're establishing them as children. Okay, that's what this movie is going to be about. Uh, And then you bring in your villain with uh, Kevin Bacon uh, and I, I thought a lot of the scenes and camera shots were set up very well. Uh, and a lot of the writing was, or the uh, sort of the structure of the writing, the way that characters are mirroring each other or everyone's going on different paths uh, and reflective of different uh, ways that you can exist as a mutant in this world uh, and ways that you can feel about yourself as a being uh, were done well. But a lot of it still just feels, I don't know, hollow to me. Um, there weren't moments that I was pointing or that I I felt like, Oh, I really feel what's going on here. Or uh, I'm really amazed at what they did in this movie. And then the entire last act I felt like was probably less compelling. than. I think one of the main problems, at least for me is like outside of those three sort of, you know, established reasons that we're going to follow Charles and uh, speak. None of the other mutants in this movie are particularly compelling. Like outside well. of how, like Sebastian Shaw is a pretty good villain, but the rest of the rest of sort of his villainous team barely have lines and barely yeah. have personalities. Mm-hmm. And I like I like Hank McCoy because I thought he was the beast, but no one else on sort of proto X Men team I give a flying fuck about. <laughs> uh, so you know. Uh, that was Banshee's code name originally, the Flying Fuck. We'll get to the code names thing because that's one of my biggest pet peeves, particularly for the X Men movies. For some reason, nobody can write a, com- a compelling scene of X Men coming up with their name. It's always the dumbest thing in the world. Well, I think the problem is that um, to self-apply those names is inherently ridiculous. So what you need is like the Reservoir Dogs naming scene, like you're Mister Brown, yeah. you're Mister Pink. Yeah. Well, so someone someone needs to do it for arbitrary and condescending reasons. But it, like it works, it works when you're like by yourself and like when you give yourself a kind of obvious gnome the superhero, like Spider Man deciding <laughs> to be Spider Man. Yeah, perfect. I'm, I'm glad you Spider-Man. used the original <laughs> French for this. But like, but like if he is, if you were like on a team and like I want to be a rock gnome, like, no, stop it. <laughs> no, Spider-Man. you're Spider Man. Yeah, oh, like I, I actually. In, I I paid attention the second time I watched it, and or I tried to, and I think the only one who actually uh, Darwin names himself because he already had that nickname, and Mystique I think does most of the rest of the naming, uh, and I felt like that was kind of her only characterization outside of how she related to one of the three men who she follows in this film. Uh, that was the only thing where she was expressing any interest for herself was, oh, I'm excited about, we get to name ourselves. Uh, and she's and clearly she... been sitting on Mystique for decades. Yeah, she's just <laughs> waiting for this. Waiting for any, the slightest, like, we can rename ourselves. She's been yeah. waiting years for some, some, some situation to come up with. Goes, Let's come the up. only other time I can think of where she says anything for herself is when she says she's studying waitressing. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. She does not, not get used super well here. And again, yeah. I still find it peculiar that Mystique of all characters seems to be the one of four beasts that is consistently in just about every uh, X-Men. Yeah. Derek, what were you saying? 
Yeah, I mean, to, to get back to the, the character's point, uh, it's one of those films where, like, it, I kind of want to say that there are too many characters. That sounds kind of dumb, but, like, there are, there are not enough characters that are kind of developed on their own terms and in their own context. The, uh, so, many, so many of the characters uh, are either, you know, they're either nods to a sensible previous knowledge that you as an audience member would have about some of these heroes. And as someone who did like, I, you know, I saw the, you know, X-Men nineties cartoon a couple of times. I never read the comics. Like I, I know the, I know the basic like top three or four, like canon of characters. Wait a minute. I want to hear which ones, you know, like outside <laughs> of the ones. I don't want to embarrass myself. Professor Y, is that his name? Wolfarine. <laughs> no, cause I'm, I'm curious, like as, as someone who watched the cartoon as frequently as I could, Well, you know, like um, Wolverine, you know, storm, uh, okay. Cyclops, you know, professor X, like Jubilee. Right. right. <laughs> Jubilee. Do you remember Morph? <laughs> I do not. Morph? He was in the first I remember episode. Morph. Yeah, he was and in one. And then came back uh, yeah. a season later or something. Um, but you know, like it, the this introduction, the 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 titular first class. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like okay, Darwin, Angel, Havoc, Banshee, great. <laughs> um, and then you know, like ten minutes after we meet him, Banshee is dead. Darwin. Uh, I'm sorry, no, Dar- Darwin oh. is dead. Yeah, uh, and it's sort of like well, that's how much. The, that's how involved I was in the death of this in this character. It's like a lot of these characters are just sort of the sum of their powers, um, and you know they're not they're not compelling in the least. Now the, the film makes up for that, I think, um, with uh, you know the really actually kind of cool uh, sort of dual protagonist plot that mm-hmm. is kind of the first act. Um, with Charles Xavier and Eric, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think part of that has to do with performances. You know, I think Ma- McAvoy and Fassbender give pretty good performances in this film, and they're uh, and they're compelling characters, right? We see their their actual origins, and they have um, they have well articulated goals. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yes, and so in in a way, they're like the film makes up for it in those characterizations. But it's really kind of bifurcated in the sense that, like, I mean, and, and with Mystique, too, it's sort of, you know, e- even um, sort of the her kind of main plot, right? This plot about, mm-hmm. you know, accepting herself for, for who she is. Mm-hmm. There's something about she is characterized or the way that it is plotted that makes it not terribly compelling, right? Because she is she is really kind of pushed not into the background, but into the kind of mid-ground as compared to the sort of dual male protagonists that are yeah. that are set up. I, I think the, um, the mystique point is interesting, and it goes back to something Bester brought up about you know, we have these same core characters that kind of recur as, as protagonists <laughs> of the film, and the fact that mystique is one of them has always baffled me. And, and my, my theory in the original trilogy was that well she was a visually interesting character that I mean, could I, serve I, some easy plot function um there's not I, really any organic or historical reason for her to be the the central sort of female lead of this film i think there absolutely is why because she's the only one who um would 
who you can write to be alive at this point and still be alive later. Uh, you, you have an explanation based on her power, but also she is this. She is of an appropriate age with uh, Azazel, right? Because she is Nightcrawler's mother, so she would be alive but, uh, in a previous generation. But but even then, like in terms of, we see the relationship that that character has with Magneto and with Xavier in the original trilogy, and she has no relationship with Xavier in the original trilogy. Well, yeah, and but she, he's he's resetting the universe, yeah. and I think she works perfectly as someone who has uh, been on uh, different sides mm-hmm. at different points, and she works well to to operate within the space between them, mm-hmm. uh, to be under the influence of Charles at first, and then to cross the lot, cross the the picket line in a way to to be with uh, or to be convinced by Eric um, and join Magneto at the end. I mean, I, th- I think it works. But if I were like sitting down to draw up a plan for an X Men film series, and I were say was saying like, who are the characters that are going to be the real focal point of all of this going forward? Mystique would not have been one of the ones that immediately came to mind. Well, so, and I understand yeah. that, but if you're going to pick one to to fill this role, like mm-hmm. if you come if you come at it with the idea of okay, on one side you have uh, you have Charles Xavier, and on the other side you have Magneto. Yeah. Well, um, now we want a second character on each side. So on the the other side with Magneto, we have the evil guy who is worse than Magneto and creates him. Mm-hmm. So you've got Shaw and then Magneto uh, on the kind of the world is evil, and I'm going to teach that to someone. And Charles, on the other side, is the world is good, and I'm going to teach that to someone. So you need a character who's going to start as good and then move towards the middle the same way that um, Charles draws uh, Magne- Eric from the other side. And uh, it makes sense. I, don't, I think she works as a character to start out with, believing that you can be altruistic, but um, conflicted in a way that will uh, allow her to change by the end of the film. No, I think it works, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, and, and this is complicated by the fact that, you know, we also have um, Rose Byrne's character, right? Um, McTaggart. Yeah, Moira McTaggart. Moira McTaggart. And we have all of these other, like, min- like minor characters that are not quite bit roles. Like Oliver Platt's character, who doesn't, doesn't get a name. doesn't even get right? a name. That's funny. Yeah. You named the two <laughs> out of maybe three likable humans in the film. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the the only one I would even say is remote. The only other human I'd say is remotely likable is Secretary of State Leland Palmer, uh, and not because he's actually <laughs> likable, but because I like that actor. <laughs> <laughs> and Leland Palmer is is, is well, I mean, anyway, <laughs> we'll avoid any Twin Peaks talk. I mean, in, you know, in in some ways, it's you know, like on on a certainly on a first viewing, and to a certain extent, even you know, when I watched for the second time. Um, this seems like a weakness in the film, but, you know, if, if we go back to thinking about it in terms of that, you know, franchise building logic, mm-hmm. you know, they introduced a lot of characters and like, it could have been a lot more of a mess, right? Yeah. I mean, we, we don't necessarily get goals for everyone, but, mm-hmm. you know, I, I can at least remember, you know, the many characters um, mm-hmm. that were introduced and, and have some basic kind of semblance. Which of... you could not do in X-Men <laughs> The Last Stand. <laughs> oh, no, absolutely not. Uh, I mean, by my count, there are 12 mutants in this movie. <clears throat> that we know of. I have a question. Um, but some of them do, definitely are less developed. Do you think that Sebastian Shaw was born with powers and that was why he was seeking out... Uh, 
people like himself during World War II? Or do you think that his research in World War II uh, gave him the ability to, like, unlock powers within himself? I think it's pretty, it's pretty heavily implied he was born with, with powers. Okay, because I feel like it can go either way. I sort of assume that, but it never, I never felt like they leaned either direction. He keeps using the phrase children of the atom to describe them. Okay. And I can't remember if it's him or somebody else who talks about how radiation gave them powers. It is sure. Which is not how X-Men happen. X-Men are not the result of radiation. But the the phrase um, "children of the atom," though, besides being the name of a video game, does does apply to like the X Men as creations of the '60s in the Atomic Age, and that that was fulfilling. It's the first arc, uh, or at least it's the name of the the collection of the the first Stanley and Steve Ditko arc. Okay, no, I I understand it as a reference uh, that that is outside of that, but that coupled with the peculiar line where he claims that. Uh, that mutants are the result of radiation. I think that was raised the possibility that maybe... Okay. You're, you're saying yeah. Kevin Bacon yeah, doesn't understand evolution. Yeah. I, well, I mean, it's entirely possible. Maybe he's not a mutant. Maybe he's, a, you know, a mutant, <clears throat> and just the uh, the uh, film kind of glosses over that. Yeah, I mean, mutations can come from anywhere. It, it uh, Presumably... Uh, the, the kind of mutations that evolution discusses are ones that happen uh, from between generations, but you can, I mean, every mole on your body is probably a mutation so you weren't wh- born with. Yeah, but, uh, which, which of those applies to the woman with the two different colored eyes that young Xavier hits on in the bar? Which of those is a groovy mutation? Generations. It's groovy, it's groovy, uh, her groovy mutation. If... <laughs> by the end of that scene, if he had used the word mutation one more time, I, actually, he'd used it too many times. I already wanted to punch him in the face. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I would get it. You're a mutant. Yeah. I also I also like the fact that um, it, it, it's implied in in the film that um, that in in the next scene that we see Xavier in where he's uh, he's chugging out of that that long glass yeah. the implication is that he has just defended his dissertation right yep. so yes he is a, so a, a, a recent uh, you know he's just gotten his PhD and now he but he's already like the world's expert in mutations which is jump out to me. Well, he probably you know invented and, the field because uh, nobody <laughs> knew about genes until the 60s so, right so my my was a fairly recent uh, discovery at that I know point. I was, my, my fiance is of course um, Ooh, I, I know ha, has a, a master's degree Ooh. in in evolutionary biology and um, her comment when watching the film, when they came to Charles Xavier as the world's leading expert, she mm-hmm. laughed and said, ha, no, it would have been a woman in the Midwest studying corn. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably accurate. I That's also like awesome. that we, we hear him read out a bit of his, uh, his thesis. Yeah. Uh, and from what I understand of sort of... <laughs> Almost maybe in the Andrethal relationships, it's entirely bullshit. There were not mass <laughs> extinctions of either species. We pretty much yeah. interbred uh, yes. into each other. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, maybe in the 1960s, I read an article uh, in the Wall Street Journal not two weeks ago blaming, like, addictive behavior in humans on their stupid Neanderthal DNA. <laughs> stupid Neanderthal DNA. Uh, <laughs> my, uh, my memoir. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but before before we excise them from our memory, uh, we, we haven't uh, have we mentioned Azazel yet? 
Okay, so okay, let's, 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 let's just run, run down. Right. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna name, mutants. yeah, I'm gonna I'm name, I'm gonna name, going. I'm gonna name these, these mutants, and then okay. you're, you're quick. What you remember of them? Okay, so you've got. Ex- <laughs> well, we'll skip the easy ones. Uh, Xavier, Magneto, uh, Mystique, Mystique, and Beast. Mystique. We'll talk about them later. Uh, Havoc. What do you remember? What do you remember? Uh, the laser Havoc? chest. Yeah, uh, and he yeah. likes solitary confinement. <laughs> laser chest. Not laser chest. Laser yep. chest. Yes. Uh, also, he claims that the reason he's so good at pinball is that he's been in solitary confinement, which does not make sense. Solitary I, confinement. I, yeah, I, I thought he said, he just said that he spends a lot of time by himself. Mm. Yeah, which I think I, is a reference to his solitary confinement. I, no, I, I assume that, that he likes to be by himself because he has this power he can't control, and. That those two things are related. Once he was in prison, he requested solitary. But as a child, he played a lot of pinball because he didn't want to hang out with other kids. Is he possibly yeah, he deaf and blind? Watching. Is he possibly deaf and blind? He's definitely not blind because he and Darwin have that that uh, uh, yeah. very homoerotic. Uh, see, I mean that scene together where Darwin is touching his chest and then they look at each other as Darwin dies. Yep. Uh, one, of, one of three scenes Darwin has. Yes. So, so well, that leads us to the next one. What do you remember about Darwin? Gills, gills, and concrete body, and uh, he adapts. He the thing about Darwin is Darwin and uh, Angel. What is her last name? Salvador. Salvador. Uh, they're clearly like second or third generation mutants because they're from a period after all of the very straightforward regular powers have been used up by previous writers. So they need to make them more complicated. But it also makes sense because they have like a more complex mutation that relates as it relates to their biology. As the first round of mutants, you know, you get Sebastian Shaw absorbs energy. I guess he's sort of the oldest one in this film. He's then you got, got psychic powers, magnetism. Um, and they, and you know, early guy has eagle wings, uh, ice ice guy, uh, guy can scream, and then you have girl who has tattoo of dragonfly wings, <laughs> which come to life, and also she can fire poison darts from her mouth. And yeah, that's a weird one. Why is that part of her power suite? Because she was created in two thousand and one, not nineteen sixteen, yeah. by Grant Morrison. Yes. Um, uh, so, okay, well, and that, Darwin that... is the same way. Like he's clearly, uh, you know, he had like his parents and grandparents were clearly mutants, and so now he's got this really weird, complicated. I can adapt to anything uh, except something that's actually going to kill me. <laughs> so having being put into his mouth. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so well, that, that, that yeah. And, uh... well, well, I was gonna, I was gonna say, Angel, uh, Lenny Kravitz's daughter. What do you remember about Angel? <laughs> Besides spitting, Harry um, Wings. Yeah, she's a stripper. Yep. <laughs> yes. Although she, to be fair, she switches sides, but then born? there really isn't much character development there. She's just switch sides. Were you about to say was she born a stripper? <laughs> no. If she was born with a tattoo, then I mean, at this point in history, in the '60s, the only people who had tattoos were sailors and inmates. Yeah. So. If you've got a tattoo, it's very distinctly marked as a lower class thing. So she pretty much had to be a stripper. That's true. Uh, but also, she she seemed to be in a pretty high scale like gentleman's club. Yeah, she wasn't so slumming. It. Then That's because everyone in this. I mean, this is X Men in a James Bond film. Yeah. Yeah. It's not. <laughs> I, I love <laughs> the, that. She's that not is... down by the wharfs. <laughs> 
that, so that I, is feel like, a, I feel like in the 1960s, hanging out with Marlon Brando, who had like full body tattoos, probably yeah. would be. I would, I would say she's more of a go-go dancer, but I think that's yeah. probably just what strippers were in the 60s. I don't know. I've never been to a 1960s strip club. Uh, <laughs> why not, dude? Go. Come on. Well, <laughs> that's, where, that's where your uh, bachelor party is. That's true. Let's go. Okay, guys, <laughs> well, we're, going, time we're going back to 1962. Someone get um, the flex capacitor. There's My, my, there's my favorite... Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, we, we have Banshee as yeah, well, yes. who... He actually was one of the first X Men, I think. Uh, really? It was. It was uh, second generation. Right. It was in the '70s. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah, he's like he's like when everybody's international when they bring Storm. Yeah, and, so uh, they bring this Irish guy in. Yep. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's, he's a very he's international the, player. The, uh, I felt like uh, the actor playing him in this film was going for the bully Weasley brother. The Weasley <laughs> yeah, who never you, appears you. in the Harry Potter films <laughs> because he's too mean and no one likes him. <laughs> Yeah, he's he's the disowned Nigel Weasley. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Exactly. Uh, yeah, he's really weird. I've seen another movie in him uh, with him called Antiviral, which is a bizarre movie about him, like a, a dystopia where there are designer diseases that everybody wants to catch, and he's like invented like a machine that he makes uh, diseases in. It's a weird fucking movie. That sounds very strange. No, I, w- I wanted to say before we got to Banshee, the uh, angel introduction scene in uh, the Go Go Dance Bar slash Strip Club is my favorite scene in the movie. I'm guessing I- it's because it's Michael <laughs> Fassbender in a dress. <laughs> Nailed it. No, it's because it's. Um, I love the idea and the opening scenes with Xavier hinted this too. I love the idea of this film that is nothing but a road movie, a sixties road mm-hmm. movie about yes. Xavier and Magneto traveling across the country to various strip clubs looking for mutants. <laughs> Fair enough. Huh? What's really strange about that sequence though is we and like they go out of their way to show us Angel and Banshee's powers and then do not bother to show us any indication of what Darwin or uh, 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 Havoc, Havoc broods Havoc. and Darwin yeah. drives a cab. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and driving a cab uh, or delivering pizzas is what uh, a lot of really intelligent immigrants end up doing when they come to America because uh, their degrees aren't worth anything. Or at least that's what I learned from a girl who was a pizza dr- delivery driver who worked with uh, Russian... Uh, nuclear physicists who could not get a job in their field, so they were working for Domino's. Hmm. We all learned something today. <laughs> I'm just saying, he adapts to survive. So okay. what you were seeing of him as a cab driver uh, is adapting to survive. Alright, so we got laser chest, we got uh, uh, dragonfly tattoo, we got... We got- Wolverine could have been in a strip club, so maybe that was uh, maybe they were going to multiple strip clubs. There you only you see go. the doors. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I suppose if they count Wolverine, there's a thirteenth. Uh, yep. Um, we've got uh, Laser Chest. We've got Darwin, who I'm going to refer to from now on as Old Gill. Um, Has, have any of you seen the movie Death Sentence? No. Because uh, uh, the actor who plays Darwin, he, as well as being on House, uh, he was. Uh, in Death Sentence, and I didn't get a chance to rewatch the scene before this, but I'm pretty sure he was directly killed by Kevin Bacon in that movie. Ah! You guy can't get that's, a break. That's quite, the, that's quite the niche to have in Hollywood. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, if you're going to play Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. Basically. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. So let's see. We got Banshee. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we, 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 no, we we did kind of the the good. Uh, 
X-Men. And then we've got Azazel. Mm-hmm. The Red Demon guy. Yes. Red Demon Nightcrawler. is my note. I love that that scene where uh, Moira McTaggart sees him for the first time because she's worried that this is some kind of, like, Soviet club. And then she gets a a mutant who could not look more like a Soviet demon. Yeah. He is is Russian in this movie. He is Russian, yeah. He is a Soviet Mm -hmm. demon. And he's literally a red menace. Yeah. You got the up you anywhere. That a 1960s uh, comic book villain would have. So that, that works. But I, I love in different scenes with him, and I'm thinking especially the scene where he comes into the CIA compound and kills a bunch of people. I love the style with which he does it. First of all, just the teleportation and then drop people from the sky. But second, mm-hmm. there's a scene where, like, all of the CIA guys have their guns on the young mutants and are telling them to stand still, stand still. And then he poofs behind them, and when he poofs behind them, he's doing this. He's got both arms <laughs> out, like he's freaking Dracula holding up his cape. It's amazing. Yeah, no, he's, a, he's, a, he's a really cool-looking demon, and they use him well. Teleportation's a, a, a fun, cool power. But does he have any other lines other than yet when the, uh, when the ship gets blown up? I think that's his only line. Yeah. And... Uh, no, he he's tell he's the one who relays he's listening on the radio uh to the uh what's happening in the immediate aftermath of that. Like, yeah. oh the, the Russians are uh, uh something or other and well, the Americans are cheering. Yeah. Uh, well he got... falls into the problem that probably the next meeting we will be talking about also has of just not like doing some cool looking things but not having any characterization whatsoever. And that's but Riptide. Riptide wears a certain tie. He wears a suit tie. That is his characterization. He has, really cool. and he has long hair. So this is how you can recognize him after he's, he's been gone for two he acts. Kind of, he kind of looks like he should be in a boy band and not in the 1960s. Uh, and his name is Riptide, but he seems to have just tornado powers. Which mm-hmm. I really follow. Well, then, well, <laughs> I didn't get that. I... Um, he could have. And, so, and he definitely doesn't have any lines. No, he has. He has no lines. His name is Riptide. They wanted to call him Rip Tornado, but they were worried about litigation. Um, <laughs> okay, so, so they had gotten Rip Torn for his part. <laughs> also, oh, it really bothers me. Uh, uh, it really bothers or me that Azazel is as fit as he is. Because I'm, I'm certain that th- that guy would weigh 300 pounds. He would never have to move <laughs> anywhere. <laughs> oh yeah, no, exactly. You'd just be able to warp, and you'd be over by yeah. the bridge. You'd warp, but you'd it makes sense for Nightcrawler to be in shape because he is actually an acrobat in the circus. Yeah, like, he does a lot of stuff where he's not teleporting. Well, <laughs> he could be, like, be in maybe, peak physical condition, like Alan Cumming. Yeah, I yes. mean, maybe, maybe like that—that's what he was like, and you know, like at nineteen, he like tipped scales at four hundred, and like went to the mutant doctor. It's like you're not going to live to thirty if you keep living like this. <laughs> and Zazel just got his shit together, and he started training with swords, and he got really good with it. And that's kind of how he got in shape. And then he sort of fell in with a bad crowd, and he and I mean, Todd were in a game. As uh, as interesting, showed up. Seba- I mean, Sebastian Shaw would probably be the one who would inspire him to get himself in shape. Yeah. Uh, that would be great if there was, like, a, a counter-training montage of, like, showing how Shaw, like, inspires... Uh, God, everyone. that would have been very interesting, because we have a couple of montages of, mm-hmm. you know, we have the good guys montage of collecting mutants for 
uh, Charles's group, but I would love to see the Collecting Mutants for the Hellfire Club montage. I just really want to, every time we talk about these X-Men films, I am so much more interested in the mundane aspects of their life. Like my, Me too. <laughs> I, I, I really, really oh. want that, that like three-hour uh, helicopter buddy cop movie, but, mm-hmm. or road trip movie with Gambit and Wolverine trying to get from Louisiana to Pennsylvania. <laughs> Uh-huh. And the uh the Iron Man uh Rhodey yep. uh, road movie. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 yeah, Iron Man mm-hmm. and Rhodey in Road to New York. Um <laughs> My dinner with Azazel. <laughs> so you've got it's the uh, movie that do, that due date should have been. Yep. So you've got those guys, you've got uh, Sebastian Shaw, who we know, and then I feel like we've put this off for a reason. Uh, we, we have uh, January Jones as Emma Frost. <laughs> this is, I feel, I feel, I feel like she was just cast because they wanted Betty Draper as a mutant. Uh, and that was the, I mean, she played a 60s woman and she looks like the perfect part, but they didn't write a part for her. Like she exists to stand around in her underwear, even like even in the scene where she's seducing the uh, the Russian uh, general or whatever. Raid Sergey Yeah, from from the Saint. Thank you. He yeah, Boris the Blade from Snatch, or apparently he also played a character in Twenty Four. But he was the bomb in Batman Begins. Yes, he was the bomb in Batman Begins. And she is she's projecting an image of herself in her underwear for him to make out with, but, but she's also, still sitting there in her underwear. I was very confused. <laughs> Why did she take off her clothes at all? And I realized it's only it's because when Xavier and uh, and Eric come in, uh, so that when they tie her up with the bedposts, so she is tied to the bed, it's so that they have a reason for her to be in her underwear. Then, pretty much, yeah. That's and also she has super strength in the diamond form, but apparently not to get out of. Yeah, why, did she, why did she run between them instead of out the window? I don't know. Was also, she was afraid uh, she was going to shatter also, by falling two stories? She also disappears for almost an entire hour of this movie. Like, the entire, like... Like, the second half of the movie, stuff. she's and, not there. Yeah. And in my, until in my the, yeah, notes, until for, uh, in my notes uh, for this on Twitter, I wrote, Oh, right, Emma Frost. I've forgotten about her, like the movie had, when she shows up at the end. And an amazing haiku Twitter bot... So I reposted that because I accidentally wrote that as a haiku. <laughs> <laughs> right, I'd forgotten about her like the movie had. Wow, that's... Congratulations! You're I a know. poet and you were unaware of that. Wow. Um, yeah, I, I don't want to... I, I agree with your points about she's poorly characterized and the movie forgets her. But I don't want to excuse the fact that she gives a very poor performance. Oh, she gives a terrible performance. Yes. I, in her defense, though, uh, she is capable. I mean, I don't know if she, she might just be the Keanu Reeves of uh, Betty Draper. And, you know, uh, she was born to play that part the way that Keanu Reeves uh, was born to be in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. But Thank you. She, she's capable of a very nuanced performance when given a nuanced role. And she, her role in this is... Just as wooden as uh, Mystique's is, I think, and absolutely uninteresting. They give her nothing to do. I, I don't even think it's comparable. I think there there is some dr- there is some dramatic and thematic meat on uh, the Mystique arc. Uh, there's there is nothing for her here. But I really want to stress that even if she does give a great performance as Betty Draper, she is terrible in this film. Oh, absolutely. Well, I also what? want to emphasize that like a lot of the things we're like complaining about her, Deborah Frost, like you know, just to have her in underwear. 
that's kind of Emma Frost's character to begin with. Oh yeah, I was yeah, and that's what Helena said. As we uh, and she's, a, she's a ridiculous character who's always dressed ridiculously. I don't yes. have it on my phone anymore, but I used to have the image of her at Jean Grey's funeral uh, from Grant Morrison's run, where she literally is just in her regular outfit with a fucking white turban. A fuzzy turban. And, yes. And I'm like, that's not how you dress for a funeral. <laughs> but Emma Frost don't give a fuck. <laughs> my favorite costume of hers is, is just like when she's wearing her normal costume, but she's in the submarine and she has matching, like, sonar headphones. <laughs> Beats by Frost. <laughs> hey, by Frost. That's a normal connection. There you go. Anyway, yeah, no, Emma Frost is... I'm certainly, I'm certainly happy that they have not used her in the subsequent movies. Uh, to be fair, though, January Jones absolutely... I mean, she is... Perfectly cast to look like Emma Frost. Uh, oh yeah, I mean, no, I think that's fine. it's I mean, like she's a, she's a pretty blonde woman. Yeah, I'll for that, I'm not going to uh, give her anything else. No, I mean it's it's terrible. Um, has anyone seen her in? Uh, was it Last Man on Earth? It was Last Man on Earth, uh, but I have not seen that yet. Okay, because apparently the Fox show or a movie? With Will, yeah, the Fox Will show. Forte, yeah, uh, okay, no, because seen. apparently she's a very funny person, like personally. Uh, and I would be very interested to see her in a comedy. I mean, yeah, maybe that's her. Maybe that's where she shines. I would. Yeah. I'm not opposed to seeing her. I'm not like dedicated to destroying January Jones. Mm-hmm. I just think that she's really shitty in this movie. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I think so we're all in agreement. Yeah, I think so, that yeah. that uh, that checks she's off not... our uh, our Baker's dozen of mutants. <laughs> she's not the only <laughs> terrible performance in this film, though. Oh, yeah. uh, no, no, that Rachel's uh, uh, not good. Huh? Uh, I was going to say the the colonel that she's talking to at, in the Hellfire Club, the human, that, oh. where he says that line about the only thing I want is more of whatever drink or some. Oh, the, got in that, bottle the guy who was on Twenty Four for every season for some reason. <laughs> sure, yeah. I only watched the first season of Twenty Four, but he, he was like the dedicated Secret Service agent for Colonel. President Palmer. He, ne- oh, he okay. never never had a major plot function. Never That's had a President major character. Allstate, right? Yeah, President Allstate. Yeah. Okay. He he never really there. There was no reason for him to survive even one season of the show, and he survived all of them. Well, I think that's because there was never like there would never be like a dramatic payoff for his death because he was just like very like sort of background radiation being in the in the show. Like it was never like, like there you wouldn't be connected to him. So it was just like oh the the redhead guy died. Okay. He was he was the wedge Antilles of twenty four. Exactly. He's he's major enough that you like notice like hey that guy keeps showing up, but not major enough that like. I bet if there's a 24 expanded universe, there's like an amazing like uh, X-wing style series about uh, about all of the adventures that's going on. Two four EU. Get Michael J. Stackpole on that. Yeah. No, get Aaron Austin because his ones are better than Stackpole. Take that Stackpole. Is it J. Stackpole or A. Stackpole? That's J. Stackpole. I, think. I thought it was J. Stackpole. Okay, I don't remember. Hey, Michael A. Stackpole. Uh, Michael J. Raid J. Stackpole. You're probably right. I don't know. <laughs> you can call me Ray, or you can call me Jay. So his reaction, particularly like afterwards seconds. when Riptide, we get the introduction of Riptide, and it like creates this little tiny miniature tornado that just sort of dances mm-hmm. on the table. It's a little baby moment. tornado. And then is this reaction of what was it that drink? <laughs> yeah, for the oh, that was that was another thing. Uh, that that's the first of two times when uh, mutant powers are described to someone, and that person is accused of like. 
drugs are involved. Because he says, what did you put in that drink? And then when uh, McTaggart calls the CIA director, he says, have you been smoking one of those funny cigarettes? One of those funny cigarettes. It's the 60s. People know about drugs now. The record record dude, you were correct. It is Michael A. Stackpole. Oh, uh, yeah. You were probably thinking of Kevin J. Anderson. Yes, yes. That's As exactly. I am at all times. <laughs> oh, KJA. <laughs> oh, Kajah. Kajah. I like to read some KJA and uh, listen to some BNB and eat my JBCs. Yeah. I mean, BNL. Sorry, not BNB. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what, that's, what I was thinking. That's BTO. Oh, that they were Canada's answer to ELP. The biggest hit with CCB. <laughs> I thought I like I didn't like spell it out. I thought you said I said I, I was thinking Backstreet Boys is what you said that. Oh. What was the, What was it that you were eating? J- JBC's Junior Bacon Cheeseburgers <laughs> from Wendy's. <laughs> <laughs> That's the unnecessary acronym that I use so frequently that my friends actually now know it. <laughs> For some reason, I just assumed it was a cereal, so I was like <laughs> JBC's. I was like running through what the It like, is a cereal. Like, is I was thinking, it, like, is junior bacon cheeseburgers, like, your favorite breakfast of, cereal? Like, honey nut Cheerios with a J? Yeah, HNCs. Yeah. yeah. You got the honey nut? <laughs> y- y'all got the honey nut? It's a yeah. wire reference. Yep. Piss anyone. Yep. You got it. It's rich in drugs. By, uh, by, uh, uh, MKW. <laughs> Yeah, Williams. All right, rounding on. rounding on the characters, uh, the, the the actors in this film, we should mention the uh, murderers' row of fine character actors. Yes, <laughs> fine like middle middle aged uh, uh, old white guy character actors. Uh, mm-hmm. You got you got your Michael Ironside as the mm-hmm. uh, uh, American uh, yep. destroyer commander at the end there. Yes. Uh, you got Ray Wise. Yep. Sherbert, or whatever his name is. And uh, James Remar, who yeah. I almost missed. Yeah. Oh, how did he miss Des- Mr. Dexter's dad? In He's in there. Yeah. Am I missing anyone? Uh, <laughs> uh, not, it doesn't really fit that, but Michael from Roswell has a very small role in being on the American Destroyer. And he also apparently is the Guardians of the Galaxy, so we can talk about him more later. The guy who there was uh, the guy who played like Stryker's dad, because uh, they mentioned no. like they mentioned William Stryker. That guy looked familiar, but I can't place him. He's been on some Law and Order and stuff. Not there's quite. A a, lot of, there's a lot of white guys. You go, hey, it's that guy from Twenty Four. Yep. You describe that about, about the guy from Twenty Four. Yeah. Percent of this uh, of this show of this movie, you go, hey, that's that guy. Uh no I I think uh that covers it you've got uh Ironside Wise Remar and Serge Bajaga Rainbow Sherbert Rainbow Sherbert yep um okay so My- Michael Ironside and Ray Wise were both villains in uh uh Paul, Ver- Paul Verhoeven films was James Remar ever a villain in a Paul Verhoeven film he's a villain in that episode of um. He was the villain in 48 Hours, and he was, uh, like, he was the crass gang member in The Warriors. Um, I don't know Paul Verhoeven's, uh, filmography quite well enough. That's good, because both of those were Walter Hill films. (laughs) (laughs) 
did we mention the name of the actor who plays uh, uh, Tradiac and? Yeah, Rainbow Sherbert. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. Sorry, that I was I was looking at the cast list when you uh, said that. And sorry, you got was... to Rainbow Sherbert, and I I. You, you were miles I just dismissed away. it out of hand. <laughs> like, I don't need to zone in on what they're talking about right this second. <laughs> thinking of Rainbow Sherbert. Yeah, uh, I mean, but I'm always thinking about. Brought to you by Rainbow Sherbert. I'll have an oh. English muffin. <laughs> Thanks. I'd love some pancakes right about now. <laughs> You're just hearing what you want to hear, Homer. Um, uh, we didn't talk about the writers of the film. It, Did we? This film has been written. Yes. Yes. Uh, and it, but there were two duos of writers, and the uh, let's see, they worked on Kingsman, Secret Service, um, uh, Fringe. Wait a minute. Now the uh, the duo who worked on Andromeda, Terminator, Sarah Connor, Connor Chronicles, and Fringe also wrote the screenplay for Thor. And they're writing the screenplay for Top Gun 2 and Power Rangers. <laughs> um, and, oh, they also wrote no Agent Revenge Cody Banks. Bruce. They wrote Agent Cody Banks. And the other duo wrote uh, Kick-Ass, Kingsman Secret Service, uh, and Stardust. Also Vaughn. Yeah, Matthew oh, yeah. Vaughn films. Oh, Stardust. Uh, is, yes. Stardust yes. is so good. Oh, and the but the story, I guess the story ideas were done by Brian Singer and Sheldon Turner, well, who the, the, wrote the, up in the air. Well, the the word on Sheldon Turner and where kind of the film comes from is so they did X Men Origins Wolverine. That was supposed mm-hmm. to be the beginning of an X Men Origins series, and the next film in the I series wish that was, had happened. The next film in the series was <laughs> going to be X Men Origins Magneto. The, actually, when they announced when that movie was announced, and then was uh, uh, that plan obviously went nowhere. It reminded me of the N64 game uh, Mortal Kombat Mythologies Sub-Zero, which was supposed <laughs> to be the same thing. It was going to be a series of games based on individual, like adventure games based on individual characters from the Mortal Kombat franchise, and that game was so bad that it went nowhere. Similar to <laughs> X-Men Origins Wolverine. It yes. was quality that killed the beast. <laughs> <laughs> But it did not kill the Wolverine film franchise. Oh, it did for a couple of years. It took a while for them to make the Wolverine. I mean, but it's the only other X Men film they've made, and it was yeah, the second most successful. But it, it's yeah, it, it is. I get this. I get the sense. I get the sense, though, that looking at um, kind of this film and where the films go from here, and then also having just seen Deadpool, that while mm-hmm. Days of Future Past you know, kind of through narrative, retconned away X-Men, The Last Stand, and reset the series. All of the, all yeah. of the first three X-Men films. Yeah. I get the feeling, though, that they've just decided to ignore X-Men Origins Wolverine because nothing about it matches up to any other film in the series. <laughs> well, or, the Wolverine, as I recall, takes place before that. No, no, it's after. Never mind. Um, it's after Jean Grey dies. Yep. Uh, and you, you got I your, mean, I feel like it's retconned out of existence. I, uh, I, I feel like retcon is too too generous a word. I, I think ignored. Okay. All right, fair enough. <laughs> um, yeah. Let's see. What what else do we have here? Uh, oh, we've gotten this far without mentioning that uh, the film is about the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yes. <laughs> oh yeah. This the film matinee. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> 
Cuba yeah. at all. Yeah, there, there's this this weird sort of uh, secret history or alternate history element of the film where the entire Cuban Missile Crisis uh, was engineered by Sebastian Shaw in the hope that uh, there would be a nuclear holocaust and then the survivors would be mutants. It, when you phrase it like that, it's a very poorly thought out plan. Um, but he comes surprisingly well, close to pulling off. Was that his plan? Was it to make everyone a mutant? Or for, or like, the to, survivors to, to be mutants. The Wait, are you talking about Sebastian Shaw? Yeah. Oh, I mean, he just wanted to take over the world, right? I mean, that was what I got. But the I Maybe I didn't listen to anything that he said, and I just assumed that and inserted that into his motivations. Yeah, he seemed to be trying to kick off World War Three, and, you know, I yeah. thought he would mind having more mutants, but I felt like it was a bit more sort of a more extreme version of Magneto's yeah, and I mean, any, I thought, yeah, I thought he, he was just being power hungry. Uh, it's never really explicitly stated. No, yeah, he almost pulls it off too. If it weren't for uh, those meddling that kids, point. those meddling kids, and their blue furry guy. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and you're talking dog. Oh yeah, we have barely talked about Beast. Uh, he's, uh, like, uh, like when we did the whole rundown of him, Beast yeah. didn't come up. Yeah. He, he about won. a Beast. About a Beast. <laughs> <laughs> before before we get away from it, though, I just i I had a vision of uh, if they'd had J was it J Edgar Hoover? Did Kevin Costner JFK? play JFK in Thirteen Days? No, or he played. Uh, was it a Secret Service agent or something? He, no, that was the bodyguard. He, he played like an advisor in Thirteen. Okay. Kevin Costner has I been in two JFK. He had a cameo role in the background of this JFK. film, is what I was thinking. Isn't he also the like the guy in JFK? Yeah, he's like doing the whole yes. presentation. Yeah, he's, yes. that, he's been in two JFK centric films right. and has not played JFK in either of them. Okay. Uh, but I wish that he had had a background role in this, even though I'm pretty sure 13 Days was a New Line film. Uh, uh, it just would have, and I only know that because 13 Days was the first movie that had the the trailer for Fellowship of the Ring, which I know was a New Line film. So uh, a lot of it sold a lot of tickets opening weekend, and then a lot of those people left after the the opening trailer. So so what you're saying is that the same reason that Spider Man is not going to appear in an X Men film anytime soon is the same reason that Kevin Costner's character from Thirteen Days is not appearing in an X Men film anytime soon. I would say yes, that is absolutely true. It is good. Good. Yes. All right. We've established that. Well, I'm glad we I'm glad we didn't get away from the topic. To, uh, so that we had to I also I just had to bring in another movie uh, that where someone could have learned about the Cuban Missile Crisis after having mentioned Red Zone Cuba and uh, Matinee. Uh, thank you for mentioning Matinee. Thank you. No, Nick, Nick said it earlier. Okay, good. Yeah, I, I described the Cuban Missile Crisis as, as made famous by Matinee. Oh, I love Matinee. <laughs> Uh, John Goodman, uh, star of Matinee, was also uh, killed by Kevin Bacon in the movie Death Sentence. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> no, actually, he might have been killed by his own son. I can't remember who played his son. Never mind. Uh, but he was in the movie Death Sentence with Kevin Bacon and the guy who played Darwin. <laughs> He's also a mutant. <laughs> We're t- you're talking about the actual John Goodman, right? <laughs> yes. yes, the actual okay. John Goodman. He has right. uh, probability manipulation powers. Yep. That's right. When I was first watching this, as a, I never wrote down Sebastian Shaw or his, his German name, I just kept referring to him as Kevin Bacon, and that was I was going to do that during the whole of the podcast, and I forgot until just now. Dang uh, it. You want us to start again? Yes, if we could just erase the rest, or just, if you could... Here, just, wait a minute. Give, give, me, give me one second of silence. Kevin Bacon. 
Okay. Now, if you could, if you could put that over every mention of Sebastian <laughs> yep. Shaw previously for, for all for all of us. Yes. Uh, no, what you... I, I, I can do that. But but what I need you to do is I need. Uh, I've got that one take. Say it mm. one more time, but as more of a question. Kevin Bacon. Okay, now I've got. What, all, what, what about, about wait, wait, Kevin wait. Bacon? <laughs> okay, all right. Now, now, dude, we're gonna need another take, but this time instead of saying uh, Kevin Bacon or Sebastian Shaw, say Hayden Christensen. Hayden Christensen. There you go. Right, okay. Now, yeah, I now, can't. I can't hear Sebastian Shaw anymore. Who would also weigh three hundred pounds because he'd never do anything but teleport, right? <laughs> yep. Now, yeah, what, what, it one took mo- me so long to figure out what you meant by that. I'm like, I don't think Anakin has teleportation powers. <laughs> now, dude, I, I need you to say one more thing for me. Um, you said Kevin Bacon. You said Hayden Christensen. Now say Hayden Panettiere. <laughs> Hayden Panettiere. And now I can I can uh, carry on the tradition of swapping Hayden for Hayden. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, uh, so, so we're in agreement. When when you edit this, make sure every time you put Sebastian Shaw, that it, instead it will say Kevin Panettiere. Kevin Panettiere. What is the name of uh, Kevin Bacon's brother? The other guy from the Bacon Brothers band. <laughs> uh, it's uh, another Bacon brother. Uh, Bo Bridges. Oh, they- Kevin Eggs. <laughs> Kevin Eggs. Thank it sounds you, like a guess. good fellas character. <laughs> Kevin Ashbound. I like the Kevin brothers. Eggs. Uh, yeah, the Bacon Brothers, uh, they have a really good song uh, called uh, Get Yourself a Good Woman and She'll Make You a Man. That's not the full name of the song, but that's the, the lyrics in the get song. Your, get Yourself I, a Good uh, Woman and She'll I Make have, You an Omelette with these eggs. I, I, can't, I have no idea if you're telling the truth right now. What Makes You a Man or Make You... Something about that's that. That's from the Rocky Horror Picture Show. It's a very good song, anyway. <laughs> it's the only song I know by the Bacon Brothers band. Michael Bacon. Uh... It's a better band than Dog Star, Keanu Reeves' band. Uh, Michael Bacon. Yeah, I've Michael never Bacon. heard. Thank you. The Bacon Brothers also appear on Sandra Boynton's children's CDs, Dog Train, and Philadelphia Chickens. Sandra Boynton has CDs? Is Sandra Boynton the, uh, the, the artist who did that book yeah. on chocolate and does those, like, cats and stuff? Yeah, dogs. Okay. Man, we're down the and dinosaurs. Hole. I actually my my childhood dinosaur towel towel was an illustration by uh, Sandra Boynton. As a uh, she has an album, and apparently Michael and Kevin Bacon sing the title song of Philadelphia Chicken. Can we transition the rest of this podcast to just be about Sandra Boynton? <laughs> no, we Cinema can't. Cinema Excelsior. This podcast about Sandra Boynton. <laughs> <laughs> You're a one-stop shop for Sandra Boynton News. This is the Boynton Report. <laughs> I went to Boynton The Boynton Brothers Band. Uh, yeah, the fabulous Boynton Boys. Uh, anyway, um, moving on. Right. right about then, them bacon boys. Were... <laughs> I'd just like to say that it was very tasteful of uh, the, the filmmakers. Mm, bacon was very tasteful. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Something about this movie... Like Made you really I watched hungry. it, and it ex it just like exited my brain. Like, yeah, 
It's not a bad film. In fact, I yeah. think it's one of the better films that we've watched. But it is so disposable somehow. There's not That's a... exactly how I felt about it. It's just, it felt just like Iron Man 2 to me. Structurally, very sound. A lot of great performances. Actors I like. Uh, there's <laughs> overacting. I really thought James McAvoy overacted a lot of this film. A little bit, yeah. But uh, at, at the end of it, I was just like... I. I don't care. I it's a good transitional film, but well, I mean, I think... what we, we said earlier is kind of it's a proof of concept that the X Men mm-hmm. X Men characters still have, you know, like the franchise. And I think I think it I also think though you you've got um I think this is partially the result of the the what you alluded to earlier, Derek, the dual protagonist structure because you've got Xavier and Magneto, who's both of their arcs in the film and their motivations in the film are defined by their relationships and their conflict, uh, conflicting ideas, but neither one of them is like the clear antagonist to the other. Shaw is, so you've got kind of this third element in there. But if you contrast it with, um, you know, we complain about Wolverine in the other X-Men films, but he is a central character in those films. Or you think about the ones that we've watched where there is kind of that one standard protagonist, there is a little bit of an anchoring effect there that at least makes the films feel like they are moving in accordance with a singular arc as they go through. And I think with the two protagonists here, it's a little bit unmoored in that respect. Hmm. Um, I made my point, you bastard. Yeah, Derek, I think I interrupted you. I forget about this film was. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, um, I agree. Uh, there's, <laughs> and yeah, I guess McAvoy's performance. A lot of it's great. A little out of bounds sometimes. Um, there were just for some me, like, part of it. Anytime he is wearing the Cerebro helmet, I was like, <laughs> this looks insane. I can't believe that. It's, I couldn't believe I was watching it. I, I felt like it was, uh, I was watching a performance from, uh, any of the Star Wars prequels where it, you're clearly seeing an actor in a green room who's just trying to conjure up something that they don't really believe exists. And, but he's got this helmet on. He's and got he's a like, colander what on. What would it head. be like to spread my consciousness all over the surface of the earth? I think it was also the first of, uh, I think, two, maybe three rather ham-fisted jokes about Professor X going bald later. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, we get it. We get it. He's gonna be bald. The line delivery, uh, when he says, I can't feel my legs, like, three or four times, after he's been lying there and he's had a conversation with his friend about how you did this to me, he clearly, like, he must, he must have been laying there, lying there, you know, trying to tell whether he could feel his legs. He must have realized it in the previous several minutes after he got shot. Only then. Does anyone know what the canonical reason for him to not be able to walk is in the the comics? I believe it is something similar to this, but I'm going to look it up now. Okay. Yeah. And traditionally, well, before this movie, I thought he was like I thought he had like been born like in a wheelchair. And I, that was that was my impression yeah, okay. too. I sort of took it as a you know he's so, he's the most powerful telepath. Uh, and so we're going to take his legs away because he's okay. all his brain. Yeah, I, I, nope. I imagine it's kind of a Stephen Hawking kind of thing, like the smartest man in the world. Is, you know. Nope. Oh. Here, here it is from Wikipedia. 
Oh, God. All right, let's go. It's incredibly dumb. In a strange town near the Himalayas, Xavier encounters an alien calling himself Lucifer, the advanced scout for an invasion by his race, and foils his plans. In retaliation, Lucifer drops a huge stone block on Xavier, crippling him. I am so sad. I'm so sad that that sort of not he was crippled by a yeti. Because that's where it could have gone. Like, when he, when he started that in the small town by the Himalayas, like, holy shit. We're Professor X for the wheelchair by a yeti. And I'm so mad at 1960s or 70s or whoever came up with that story, uh, Marvel, for not making him wheelchair because of a yeti. <laughs> Uh, uh, like, <laughs> a giant stone block. Yep, dropped on him by an alien named Lucifer. I I think I'd like it better if it were like a Bane style, like "fuck you, I'm gonna break your back" kind of a thing. But like the giant what, what stone I, block, it's the equivalent like, of a Roadrunner gag. What yeah, I don't understand but, is if a giant stone. I mean, does it can't be that large? Because if it were. As big as I'm picturing it, it would decimate his body. There would be nothing left. It was a brick. It was so a it brick that big. happened to hit him right in the right part. So like it's, the size it's, of a person's head, maybe. So and it just like hits him at just the right angle to break his spine. It's like, the way you describe it as a brick, it sounds like a, a crazy cat cartoon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like if you threw a brick at someone's back, there's a pretty good chance you could, uh, you could break. With alien strength, certainly. I mean, I guess it's possible, but I mean, bricks yeah. are heavy, and it could, I mean, if it's sharp and hit him up the corner, hit him with the yeah, corner. Exactly. I guess, yeah. You know, uh, <laughs> and I guess it depends on how strong the person is. If I threw a brick at you and hit you in the back, I don't think it would break your spine. <laughs> well, I have, I have this protective layer of fat that will keep me alive forever. Uh. Um, That's exactly the reason I don't get in better shape. Like, if I hit with a brick, it won't do as much damage as it might. Although I, I also think stone is probably dense. I guess it depends on the stone, but okay, okay. I think a lot of stones are denser it than He probably didn't toss a thing of pumice at him. He's like, oh, my back! <laughs> a balsa tree fell on him. Okay, so so it, it gets it gets even better, Okay. Oh, God. Because How that's that's only the that's only the first time Xavier was crippled. Oh God! <laughs> Later, uh, so Marvel had this alien species called the Brew, who were basically xenomorphs from it. Uh, the, the Brood, isn't it? The Brood? Yeah, the Brood. The I'm D? sorry. I'm sorry. Okay. Bro- brew was the little nerdy Brood that was basically an accountant. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding. He was uh, the emo. Yeah, he was. You, you used him. Was as, that because yeah, it really go either way. Yeah. No. Didn't I play his? Ca- didn't you? Uh, you were. You were Brew. Yeah. Yeah, and um, the, and he's and the he, one who, yeah, yeah, he's got the glasses. So anyway, at one point, uh, the brood infected Xavier, and he was going to become a brood uh, brood monster. And so they cloned him into another Xavier <laughs> what was, body. What was Patrick Stewart's board <laughs> name? Uh, Locutus. Locutus. <laughs> oh, my God, So they clone him into another Charles Xavier body and mm-hmm. transfer his consciousness. And this Charles Xavier can walk. So he's got his legs back. Yes. But then there's another battle with an old foe called the Shadow King, in which his spine is shattered and he's crippled again. Wow, then, talking about your bad luck. Then 
there is another traumatic event where it oh, seems God. like his spine has been healed and he's walking around oh, for several months. Oh, this is Morrison's new X-Men? But then it turns yes. out that his spine was just being held together by little nanomachines that were being yes. controlled by Magneto, who turned out yes. not to be Magneto. So he was crippled but again. I was, they, I was really sad. I was really hoping that that situation had happened before Grant Morrison. And then, <laughs> yeah. like, this was just fucking happening all the time to him, like, every six months. He, ha- he has he has been crippled three times. Yes, and now well, we find it. Maybe not that last one. That's just sort the of the most... like it's not like he broke his back again. His back just seems to no longer be broken. Yeah, uh, I I just I mean there are people with broken backs who are able to heal themselves with you know under their own like power. Their their bodies can heal, or someone they who tries hard enough. By Lucifer. I know, but he's he's supposed to be one of like the most powerful psychics on the planet, and I always find it slightly insane that uh, he he could suffer an injury so bad that he could not heal his own back, or that all of the alien technology he messes around with couldn't heal his own. It's the, back. It's the grand irony of Charles. Maybe he just doesn't care because he uses his brain to for you know to be more powerful. But than then his legs. then he would weigh like four hundred pounds. <laughs> No, he can keep the pounds off with uh, the power of will. Uh, oh. He's also really good friends with Tony Robbins. Stay away from me, pounds. I mean, given, the, given how much Magneto loves flying around by a magnetism somehow, uh, you know, yeah. he might also... I was also, really bothered by that in this film, but I assume that Hank, Hank McCoy built Magneto's suit to have, like, metal plates in it. So that, okay. that was how I explained it. Yeah, for like, this I, remember, I remember watching that like, after he sort of this, you know, apocalypse. Yeah, when he leaves the, his, the ship uh, or the submarine. Reality, he just kind of does his Magneto fly yeah. out of the thing. And the only visible metal on him is like the little belt buckles. Yes, I know. And why isn't he hanging in the air from these buckles? <laughs> I assume he probably has plates in his feet and arms and stuff. <laughs> well, I mean, I, they did make some uh, reference to uh, the suit being bulletproof. So there might be... Okay. Uh, there Although... Might be there is definitely a scene where Banshee is flying without screaming at all. He's just flying around like a, like also, a bird. Also one where he is flying with one arm tucked into his body. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really seemed like this, this movie played fast and loose with how necessary it was for the powers to make sense, you know, in-universe. Yeah. And also, like, I think, like, particularly Banshee's powers. Banshee's powers, to me, seemed especially sort of, like, how did that work? Like, when he, like, yeah. dives down into the water and uses his thing... The sonar. Yeah, like, you thought that it would go. How is he able to interpret that information in such a way that it actually pinpoints where that? Was... I think I think the movie should have killed off Banshee instead of Darwin. Darwin. I think that would be great. Those powers were fucking ridiculous. Instead of falling into the kill the only black character cliche, <laughs> yeah. right after he's had his kind of homoerotic moment, like within the same scene, <laughs> kill the only character. Yeah. <laughs> Sexually ambiguous and dark skinned. No, you could have, like, first of all, I agree that Darwin would have been more interesting to keep alive. Second of all, Banshee in the climax is underwater for like 10 minutes at one yeah. point. Mm-hmm. Um, like, screaming. After, he jumps into the water, immediately opens his mouth, and shoots all oxygen in his body out of it into the water. But he's well, but we've already Fine. established that the son- the sonic power doesn't come from his actual vocal cords. Uh, it comes from his mutant from his chakra. It's a muscle. It's a muscle he can control. Yeah, which Charles tells him many times in like a weird, like encouraging way. That I'm like, mm-hmm. I don't know how that helps him. Like being told it's a muscle. 
uh, the power of uh, positive thinking. I mean, how does... What is the line? It's the point between... What, what, hold on, hold on. I'm going to find it. Uh, Rage and serenity? Uh, yeah, the point between... Um, yeah, the point between rage and serenity. This is a nonsense line. This <laughs> is not a spectrum where you can just like, move a little farther along on the spectrum and say, okay, I'm just past serenity almost to rage. Yeah. Uh, and like this is where now. I can magically focus. Serenity now, insanity forever. Serenity now, insanity later. Which I guess proves true. Um, uh, but is that from, possibly. Is that from the montage where uh, Charles gives his little pep talk and now Magneto can uh, move? No, it's at, it's from the climax of the film when he's lifting the submarine out of the water. Oh, okay. <laughs> Although he does he does establish it earlier. Yes, that is yeah. when they're. Talking. I feel like a lot of this movie is uh, Charles giving meaningless pep talks to various other mutants. They're not meaningless. Oh, yeah, you're right. He's. Like, I'm telling you, he's uh, he's good friends with Tony Robbins, and this is the secret to Charles's teaching professorial powers. Yeah. Uh, where he will gain his uh, his Professor X uh, title. Like when he tells Speaking Hank to be what? more like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and then after he laps him, he says Robert Louis Stevenson would be proud. That scene drives me crazy. Because <laughs> one of the one one of the evolutionary advantages of uh, Homo sapiens over previous forms of primates is actually having hands their their hand feet. Uh, point forward, which makes them better runners than pr- than other primates. So that would actually be the one thing that Beast could not do as well as a regular human, <laughs> is run long distances very quickly. Also, how does he, how does he fold his, uh, his monkey Hands to fit inside into shoes? Into regular <laughs> shoes. He's really wearing normal shoes, because no one in yes. his life has noticed this. But yeah. Just sort of like, they fold in on themselves. He's very strange. Mm-hmm. He's just got those, also, like, he's got those, like, five-finger shoes. He's Hank McCoy. Yes. He invented them. <laughs> 50 Vibre, years before yeah. they existed. Five-finger shoes. Yeah. Uh, uh, that, uh, that, oh, the, the scene when he's talking to Mystique and says, uh, it's just going to fix our appearances, not our powers. What is Beast's power other than his appearance? That is his only mutation, is his appearance. Well, he's super oh, smart. I don't think yeah, that's part of his mutation, is it? <laughs> he also very specifically uh, he, he uses the word behooves. It behooves him to explain that she is ugly and no one will ever love her unless he takes the serum. She's, he's like, it behooves us to understand that society will never accept my feet or your appearance. They'll always be ugly. I'm like, what are you doing, Beast? Here's speaking of scenes the- between those two, can we talk about when they're having that, and I know symbolically it works really well, when they're having their picnic in front of the fan, yep. and the fan symbolizes turbulence, and they're both rotating around each other with these same emotions, and then Magneto emerges as if from the, the turbulence of the fan behind them. But uh, they're sitting there at a picnic with a bowl of Twinkies, a bowl of unwrapped <laughs> Twinkies. That is part of their picnic. But... Uh, and this brings me to another uh, another segue. That is one of at least two scenes where we enter, we we see characters uh, doing something together that is sort of symbolically representative, uh, but we don't see them actually doing it. It's just a setting for them to be interacting. And then then later, you see Charles and Eric playing chess on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. Yeah. And did they just carry this chess set out into DC? <laughs> Like I don't, I don't, I don't buy this at what all. What do you think, Charles? Time for a game. I don't see Beast unwrapping a bowl of Twinkies so he can seduce uh, 
uh, uh, Raven uh, any more than I see them like walking out through. They are the only two characters in front of the reflecting pool. But in this entire stretch of Washington D.C., you can see no one else. You were in at four a.m. They're uh, they're playing chess. I want to see one move, but they're they're not even looking at the chessboard. They're like uh, Charles is just kind of like like laying on his side uh, kind of sensually or one of them is laying kind of sensually on his side and looking off towards the Washington Monument and the other one is just sitting there uh, also not looking at the board like I mean I, the, the previous movies had established that they like playing chess together so I mean I understand that but yes that is a very odd setting for like there's any, yeah. there's literally any place they could have played chess and it's it's just an, an example of like that we need them to be doing something that is symbolically representative, but we don't actually need to show them doing it. And it, it it's another thing that just feels, but I don't know, it drives is, me nuts in a movie. But when what, you is, see these... what is the symbolism behind the bowl of Twinkies? Well, I mean, the symbol, the setting of being in this weird space in front of the fan, and they're they're having like a romantic moment, and then, oh, so you're not uh, ta- you're not talking about how like the Twinkie appears to be entirely spongy and yellow on the outside, but is actually white and creamy on the inside, and they need to learn uh, how to reveal their inner Twinkie. Well, I would I would say that they're they're reaching for something that is a very human kind of moment. They're trying to make a connection that has nothing to do with their mutation. Uh. Uh-uh. Uh, they're, they're trying to form a relationship uh, in so that uh, is is ultimately going to go nowhere, like the empty calories of uh, Twinkies. Um, also set against the uh, the idea that Twinkies are the only thing that would survive the apocalypse, um, ah. uh, the nuclear apocalypse. So there you have uh, Flabbity Blue. Uh, they're also, you know, kind of iconically sixties. Yeah. yeah. I think probably, there's a, you see a, another food, really and I can't remember what it is. So this might be like a really fancy thing for uh, Hank who brought with him. It was like, have you heard about the... You know, <laughs> it's like when... <laughs> yes. Uh, the legends were you. true! <laughs> uh, but it's, it's just one of those kind of scenes that drives me nuts in a film where they... It's just a vehicle for s- some kind of conversation, but it doesn't look real. I don't buy that we are, like, it looks like we have come upon actors who are waiting to deliver lines. It doesn't look like we have come upon characters in the middle of living their lives. I'm going to go the other direction and say uh, I totally believe the interactions, but also believe that these are crazy people who (laughs) think it's a good idea to go on dates in front of giant fans with bowls of Twinkies and play chess in front of the Lincoln Memorial for no reason. Yeah. I mean, it's, they're clearly, feel, feel, they're feel, both feel, on dates. It was the style at the I feel time. Because if you're not taking it with giant fans and feeding her Twinkies, I don't know what kind of a uh, Valentine's Day you guys had. Cynthia, I promise I'll take you to uh, a giant fan and feed you Twinkies. <laughs> um, speaking of the style at the time, uh, I love the uh, the little speech uh, at the end by JFK about Thanksgiving uh, when the when we traditionally serve uh, walking bird. <laughs> I like the punctuation you did with your stein there. Yeah, walking bird. <laughs> walking bird. Uh, for I, those of you who are not one of the three people I'm speaking with, <laughs> uh, I'm drinking coffee out of a, a, a stein with a metal you're, cap. You're or, drinking coffee out of that beer stein? Oh yeah, because it's the only mug that I have that will hold an entire pot of coffee. <laughs> Also, the, the lid keeps it keeps it warm. 
All right, that's pretty airtight logic. All right. Yeah, sure. But you have trouble believing that anyone would play chess on the Washington Monument. Or the no, Lincoln I have Memorial. trouble believing that these two characters were actually playing chess because they're clearly not interested in chess at all. Uh, I think, but I, uh, it just, I don't buy it. Like, uh, what do you want? The I acting think, is not convincing to me. <laughs> I think we're butting up against the the edges of the the film, considering we've been talking. Oh, about... Oh, I think we still have plenty of plenty of other minutia to go over. We haven't talked about yeah. the the Nazi coin. Um, we haven't talked about uh, Kevin Bacon's Actually, terrible German accent. All right, wait, yep. wait, yeah, 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 and uh, I didn't actually know this, but Michael Fassbender was born in Germany and raised in Ireland. Uh, and But it seemed like there was a deliberate choice on the filmmaker's part for him to be speaking English instead of using the German that the countdown was done in originally. Because mm-hmm. uh, it was eins, zwei, drei. But he does one, two, three. And it seemed like he was giving up his sort of German heritage in this scene and uh, uh, using deliberately English to like reject his teacher figure who had gotten him to, you know, uh, uh, first opened up his power for him uh, with the traumatic moment. Um, but then on a meta level, the actor, Michael Fassbender, was deliberately giving up any semblance of accent and had reverted to his natural kind of Irish accent for the the, uh, the scene. Yeah, wunderbar. <laughs> uh, speaking, speaking of the, the, the first scene with the coin uh, where little Eric's uh, mother gets killed, I found it kind of strange that, like, after his mother gets shot, and he has, and Eric has kind of his carry moment where he, mm-hmm. you know, goes crazy and says, "Fuck all this metal! I'm gonna crush it yeah. all." That none of that theory seems to be directed at the man who has just murdered his mom. He yeah. like he, he squeezes the skull, the he crushes the skulls and mm-hmm. the helmets of the of the German soldiers, and he like crushes yeah. uh, like a bell and a filing cabinet, and he fucks up it. Uh, Kevin Bacon's Mengel Mengel. Uh, mm-hmm. Lab, but none of it's fine to ask Kevin Bacon. Well, it's fine here. I, I think that because this led me to questions about what happened after this scene in his in his childhood. Because we see that scene of Charles in his childhood, and he realizes, uh, or, you know, he he is without limitation. He has the the wealth and power to give as much as he wants, and that's the basis for his future philosophy. Uh, whereas Eric, we see the the world will take everything from him. So, and that's the basis of his future philosophy. Uh, and his first experience of his powers, aside from the, the gate in the front, is he has no control over them per se. He's just crushing things, and then there's chaos. He can't direct it. And I, I thought that it's insane that he would not have killed this guy before his, before his middle age. You know, that, that As soon as he got any amount of power, he would have killed this, this torturous father figure. But I think the implication, even at the end of the film, is that he has some kind of mental block against being able to harm this man who is essentially his Frankenstein creator. Uh, and it's not until he's able to get past that uh, with Charles's help. Because he d- when he first sees um, uh, Shaw on the submarine, theoretically he could just as easily have taken his helmet off of him with his magnetic powers, right? Then when they're having this uh, this confrontational battle, he's, he's pulling the girders down and they're creating a prison around Shaw, and but he can't hit him. 
he, all of the things are going slightly askew because he doesn't have full control over his powers yet. He can't attack the one man who woke him up. Uh, and none of that is, like, stated, but it's not until he punches the helmet off of him and Charles is able to freeze the man that they sort of come together as a unit and he's able to slowly drive the quarter through his head. Is that what he does? I thought he, yeah, I thought he, he like, manipulated like, the girder behind him and then snatched off the helmet. Yeah, that's correct. Oh, maybe that's it. Sorry. Yeah. Um, oh, also, Darwin, I think, uh, <laughs> the moment before he gets killed, he goes to punch Shaw, mm-hmm. and I think that might be the only moment that any of the mutant, any of the mutants actually try to do regular human violence to another character. No, no. They, Mag- Magneto punches Shaw a couple times, and it doesn't take... Okay. Well, I know that in the previous scenes when they're infiltrating the uh, the uh, Russian soldiers' compound, I think he maybe punches a guy in there, but it's almost exclusively him using his powers. Does uh, does like a running knee. Okay. Yeah, yeah maybe you're right, but uh, it was it was very distinct to me that Darwin, like, uh, after he is pu- after uh, Shaw has absorbed Havoc's energy, that Darwin like loses his his shit and goes to punch him. Uh, in the chin, and he just kind of deflects it. Um, it. It just seemed unusual in the whole spectrum of the film to have one of the mutants actually attack with a regular fist. Um, well, how else would he attack? He doesn't really have an offense. He has, he has well, like, entirely reactionary offense. And I mean, that's that's what I'm saying. It was a very notable moment uh, because almost no one else does that. Yeah, and uh, where where did it get him? And then he it gets got, killed. It got him dead. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, Did anyone oh, else pick up on the homoeroticism between those two figures? No, no, it was there. Okay, because he's actually touching his stomach at one point when they're when the distraction happens outside. It's like very distinct. I thought I did, I did not notice that. I did not. Okay. I, I, I will take your word that it's there. Yeah, yeah. Every, every, everything that. about Havoc comes back to people wanting to to do things with his laser chest. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> um, I actually thought it would have made more sense to have him be attracted to the Banshee character. Because he's so uh, gorgeous? Because uh, he's the no, bad because, boy Weasley? Well, I, <laughs> I thought it would have made sense for the Banshee character to have like a vaguely homoerotic relationship, and that's why he's constantly making fun of McCoy for no reason. Uh, that there's some weird thing going on there. But okay, also, well, uh, this is Cyclops' father, right? Brother. No, this is Cyclops' brother. Right. Oh, Cyclops. I thought that was his dad. No, Cyclops' father is Corsair, the space pirate. That's right. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> this is also. This is also. Isn't Alex Summers normally Cyclops' younger brother? Younger, yeah. I don't know. Uh, so obviously, obviously, you know, there's perhaps there's no actual relationship here, or you know, maybe it, maybe in um, the new one that's coming out, maybe they'll establish that Alex Summers is his dad. <laughs> How old is Moira McTaggart supposed to be in the other X-Men films? That Are we to assume that it's the same Moira McTaggart? Because, because she's older pretty, than not. It's she, a pretty yeah. radical change of careers. Yeah, okay. also, like, she did a really great job growing from a 30-year-old Rose Byrne to a 40-year-old <laughs> Olivia Williams and changing careers and nationalities and accents <laughs> over a span of 40 years. So are we uh, supposed to assume that he has just been close friends with two Moira McTaggarts? That's the only I mean, logical explanation. It's a common name. <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe, uh, maybe Xavier erased her mind and reprogrammed her mind so that she would be in a different career. 
That's <laughs> entirely possible. And also magically um, made her younger in the future. Although, speaking of Moira McTaggart and Banshee, from what I was reading, uh, the actor who was playing Banshee uh, played it as though he had a crush on Moira because apparently they are a thing. They're a thing. In the comics. So, oh, like, okay. apparently, if you watch it and you see that they're in him, he's like, you know, puppy dog eyes at him, at her, mm. but I don't. Okay. Do they share a scene in the film? No, no. <laughs> they never uh, speak to each other. No, not at all. Well, he was too shy. Uh, they're on the beach together at the end. I guess. And yeah. she went, like, oh, when they, uh, when, you know, they're doing their, like, we're, you know, college kids off by our own for the first time party thing, and the, uh, and the CIA person is like, what are you kids doing? <laughs> they have that scene together. Scared <laughs> I have absolutely no idea what Banshee's name is. Sean Cassidy. Isn't that a pop star? You're thinking Leaf Cassidy. No, that's Leaf Harrison? Leaf Garrett? Cassidy. Brad Garrett? Byron Preacher. Neil Cassidy? Byron McTaggart? Uh, Neil Armstrong? Sean Cassidy uh, is, bo- yeah, he is both a singer and banshee. It's not the same guy. But it's, 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 Are you I, sure? I refuse. I refuse to believe that. It's I not the same guy, that. but it is. Uh, it's the same uh, different spelling the, of the name. Isn't he the older brother of the Partridge family? Is that who he Sean Cassidy was Johnny uh, Osmond. Sean Cassidy was one of the Hardy Boys. Um, hey, uh. Can we uh, can we talk for a minute about the the sixties role of women in this film that seems to be like they're very deliberately playing into how how uh, women were I guess the, the our view of how women were thought of at the time yeah right because mm-hmm. we the, the first human woman we see within five seconds of being on screen she strips down to her underwear then goes into a club where. Uh, where the the first mutant or the second mutant woman we see is in her underwear greeting an entire parade of women in their underwear, uh, and then uh, so she, she uh, McTaggart spends this entire time in the Hellfire Club in her underwear spying, uh, and then she goes back out to the car and continues to sit there in her underwear, uh, and then she when she reports to the CIA. Uh, when she reports to the CIA with the the psychic and the shapeshifter. Uh, they they immediately tell her that she's crazy and tell her she's bought herself a one-way ticket back to the typing pool. Yep. <laughs> and then at the very end, the same guy is like, this is why women shouldn't be in the uh, CIA when she's like, yeah. what kind of she remembers. Bo- both of which sound like scenes and lines from a bad 60s sitcom. I mean, it's just... This it is why women James shouldn't Bond, right? be in the CIA. <laughs> Uh, and Samantha would do her little nose thing and make a fool out of him. <laughs> turn him into <laughs> turn him into a newt. And then, she, and then she'd be like, "Newts don't belong in the CIA either." And step stomps on him. Yeah. Very dark. Very dark. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They try to arrest her, and she burns him alive. <laughs> yeah. The first pirate. <laughs> Bewitched the first pyro. Dick York, the first pyro. <laughs> Dick Sargent was the second pyro. Dick Sargent, second pyro, not oh, Dick, 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 Dick Sargent. Sergeant York. <laughs> it's like, 
So, uh, I have a question about Cerebro in this film. Did Hank that build Cerebro? <laughs> Thank you. Did, did Hank build Cerebro before he met Charles? Yeah. Yes. Is can Cerebro be used by anyone who is not a psychic? Unclear. Not, not well. Okay. It's unclear to me if it's ever been tested before they decided, like, hey, uh, Charles, let's send your consciousness over the entire country. Yeah, that's my question. Happen. Why did he build this thing when he had never met a psychic? I don't know. <laughs> Why do you have a fucking another mutant in the CIA uh, special division that Oliver Platt is? It just by, by chance? The, no, uh, because he... he excelled in this field for the same reason that Charles did, because he knows that this thing exists. So he worked as hard as he could to... to I mean, he chose this field based on the fact that he is a mutant. Yeah. Uh, he, he didn't rise to the top for no reason. He's just a random tech in the CAA who happens to be... Yeah, under he's already Oliver designed Platt. this jet. He's, he's clearly a genius who is, who is specifically recruited okay. for his so scientific he's, so genius. He's in, the, he's, in the, he's in the aeronautics field, but I don't... Oliver, Platt, Oliver Platt hadn't set up like the mutant hunting division, there's just this giant coincidence of, hey, I, I found three mutants. Oh, by the way, this guy over here who works for me uh, for five years also happens to be a mutant. I don't think we can make any assumptions about what is going on in Oliver Platt's division as we do not even know his name yes. or what his rank is or what authority he has in any way. So let's let's Well, just he, he's the head of a secret division of the U.S. government military something or other. So Pretty cut and dry. Uh, which also yeah. makes it hard to believe that he is as nice and awesome as he is, as Oliver Platt you know, portrays. He, he is um, like, he's very nice and awesome. He, he is yeah. the, the purest example example I can think of in maybe any film I've seen recently of a character who exists entirely to be a plot device. I mean, I would say he's the, uh, the, um, uh, oh my God, how did I just forget his name? Um, Dr. Livingston. No, uh, from the Avengers movies, uh, the guy who dies in Avengers, uh, the one who recruits all of them for S.H.I.E.L.D. Yeah, Coulson, agent, I kept wanting to say Cole and I knew that wasn't it. Uh, yeah, he's the agent of the X-Men films, um, Except, except he appears in one and dies immediately before we have any connection to him. But he also dies uh, in the sky in a way. Like, there's, you know, Coulson dies when they're on the ship off the ground. And uh, Oliver Platt dies by being lifted off the <laughs> ground uh, and dropped. That's true. He could come back. I mean, I feel like he, it doesn't seem like uh, as, it, as He does drop him, like, um, several hundred feet, I think. So unless yeah, that like, was, no, that, what like, if he, he was a late mutant the and the stress of falling through the air is what activated his power, which was uh, to, uh, he, he can it's survive falls from no greater than uh, a thousand feet. Now, what if, what if Azazel had thrown, had thrown a brick at Oliver Platt's back? What if he's actually the blob and... He uh he gets brain damage and then later joins uh Mag the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants um uh because and then he somebody fell. says Bub and for some reason inexplicably he mishears that as Blob. <laughs> what <laughs> do you mean somebody? Who is going to say Bub besides Wolverine? Somebody. What if what if we were coming up on the end of this podcast and moving well, to Well then I would have fun. to bring up uh the moment when Is it uh, wait 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 Angel is this Wait a minute when Angel reveals her tattoo can turn into actual dragonfly wings and before she can even move the wings Miss Raven yells you can fly because 
How could anyone with dragonfly wings fly? Uh, it, it doesn't make sense to me. It's a big leap from having wings to actually being able to fly. Okay. And dragonfly wings. Sorry. I, I didn't believe it. I was like, you know, you, you have your power is clearly that your tattoo will turn into actual wings. I don't believe you can fly <laughs> until you prove it. Moving to... He already uh, has the acid spit thing going on for some reason. So yeah. it's not like... It's not like she needs to fly. Well, that hadn't been... I don't think she reveals the acid spit until after she's flying, right? Because that's when they... Oh, who is that statue of, by the way? Uh, some guy they fucking hate. J. Edgar Hoover? The CIA hates J. Edgar Hoover. As my notes here say, what did that statue ever do to them? I mean, I... It's not established who the statue is of, and they just refer to it as the statue. <laughs> so, moving on to our final thoughts, because we do need to wrap this up. We've been talking for a couple hours at this point. Uh, Dude, we'll start with you. What's your final thought on this film? Uh, I really enjoyed the cameo of uh, the, the big board from Dr. Strangelove. Uh, <laughs> so that was probably my favorite part the of the <laughs> They're going to get a look at the big board! Uh, that was clearly... I mean, they just designed the war room from Dr. Strangelove, yeah. right? Like, yeah. that was it. Um, uh, let's see. Other final... I When I watched the movie the first time, I took notes on all of the plot stuff, and then the second time I was taking notes on, like, more analytical thoughts. And then I basically stopped taking notes after the Hellfire Club attacks the new recruit base uh, and kills Darwin. Mm-hmm. Because I was bored to tears with pretty much the entire final act. I didn't care at all to, to reason out like what was happening with the Russians destroying the own, their own Russian ship. And, and the, uh, the submarine, like, sonar technology exists. How do neither of these sides figure out that there is a submarine there? How does it get in stealthily? Uh, that, that bothered me. Uh, but I didn't, I just, didn't, I, it just, I don't know, I didn't care about anything that was happening at the end. Um, and uh, Red Zone Cuba. A man gets thrown in a well. Man. For no reason. <laughs> I have no closing thoughts. <laughs> I, I, uh, I do, I mean, I, I did think that this was a good uh, transitional film. And it was a, they really did a good job of pulling this thing out of the ashes and saying, okay, we can make a better film than the last two that were made. Um, but they hadn't, uh, I don't know, it didn't hold together for me um, the way that uh, Days of Future Past will. Mm. Uh, yeah, I look forward to talking about that. I've only seen it once, but I really yeah. Knock on wood, hopefully the next one will also <laughs> Oh, are we going to do Days of Future Past or the, uh, the Road Cut separately, or should we try to do both of those together? I, think I haven't watched the road cut yet, but I feel like they're probably distinct. What, what, what I've read is that they are, it would be like watching the director's cut of Elektra as opposed to watching mm-hmm. the director's cut of Daredevil. Like there's a little okay. more, but it's not a materially different film. Okay. Well, Should we well, try to watch? Me. Well, we can talk to it when we get there. Yeah, right. remind, anyway. remind me and I'll try and watch both when we uh, get there. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, Derek Long, your final thoughts. Uh, I've seen this film twice now. Uh, the first time I saw it, after I got out of the theater, the only material thing of the film that really stayed with me was the fact that the name of the freighter uh, during the entire last act <laughs> is the Errol Sea. But it's just written on the boat as Errol Sea. 
even though it's like <laughs> US a Russian vote. <laughs> not oh. in Cyrillic. It's not. It's just the Errol C. Uh, and I remember when I when I saw this the first time, this annoyed me to such an extent that I pretty much forgot the rest of the film. Um, and my second uh, engagement with the film, I, I was m- much more engaged, but I'm still really annoyed by that. Come on, Cyrillic, That's, Cyrillic. That uh, reminds me. How is the name of the boat is? One more question. Uh, when Professor X is delving into, uh, I think it's Emma Frost's mind mm-hmm. to see the plan uh, of Sebastian Shaw with like, and you see the map of the mu- the the missiles and the U.S. Uh, and the the map of the world that he has on his board that Emma Frost has seen in her memory says Russia on it. Should it say the Soviet? Like, would would they just be calling it Russia at that point? Uh, it seems like it should probably say Soviet Union or something other than just Russia. Am I wrong about that? It is one of the uh, socialist republics yeah. that yeah. is in a union. How, how, how detailed a map are we talking? <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's uh, like a pre-Soviet map. That's possible. He didn't spring for a newer map. I also like the captions, like, Moscow, Russia. It's like it's supposed to... <laughs> Moscow, Illinois. I <laughs> uh, like Paris, Texas. It's fine. The movie's fine. Yeah. It's, it's worth your time. That's true. Uh, it is. Watch and watch, enjoy, and forget. Yeah. <laughs> Nick Bester, your final thoughts. All right, my final thoughts have to do with Charles and uh, first on Charles. So we see him uh, coming out of uh, his dissertation uh, defense and Raven makes a comment about him now being a professor and he very explicitly says he is not a professor until he has a teaching job and then throughout the movie everyone keeps referring to him as a professor we've already established he's not a professor stop calling him professor okay uh, fair enough that's, that's the first one uh, then they need two observations one uh, I think they do really good work with his uh, magnetic powers the, the two standout moments for me uh, when he goes to Argentina and he's uh, attacking the Germans in that bar, he, mm. he stabs the guy's nice. hand, he, yeah. uh, he takes the knife out, he throws it, magnetos it back, and stabs it in again, which yes. is a really cool yep. move. And then when they're attacking the Russian mansion somewhere, I'm not entirely clear where they are at that point. Uh, and he goes in and he starts using his magnetic powers on all the concertina wire. And this mm-hmm. concertina wire like pops up like a giant snake and bites a guy and like pulls him back. I was yeah. cackling, cackling wildly during that. Uh, <laughs> and then finally, um, at the very end of the movie, when the movie remembers that Emma Frost was a part of this movie an hour ago, and he goes in to rescue her. I really like that not only has he taken Shaw's helmet and painted it, but also given the dainty little set of horns at the front for some reason. <laughs> yeah, it looks very interesting. Really feel like undercuts his uh, sort of the majesty he's going for. Like, he's just gone for like the standard Magneto sort of maroon and purple paint job, but the rest of the helmet was fine. I think that was a lot better than his weird, like, here's a little cup of horns. Did anyone else think that that 
helmet looked utterly ridiculous every second that it was on screen. Like, it was too <laughs> yes. large for Kevin Bacon or something. Yes. Like, this is clearly a helmet that they didn't put enough padding inside. It, I, I kept expecting him to turn his head and it just, like, spin so that he couldn't see. <laughs> yeah. So it's clearly a helmet that was made for Michael Fassbender's head and, uh... it looks better on him. And then, uh... Kind of. I think we just... We, we chalked, oh, yeah. we chalked that up to... It looks like they took the Ian McKellen helmet and just reused it. They probably did. Uh, but yeah, no, the entire the entire plot device of this helmet is uh, fairly silly to begin with. Was it the Russian? Uh, did they say the Russians made it? Russians made it for Shaw, so, yeah. Okay. yeah that's, they made, that's made it for Shaw, but did not bother to actually make it for his head. It just yes. gave him this thing. But I, I like the idea that it's yeah. it's a work in they, progress, and he's going to try things on it for 40 or 50 years, and sometimes it's going to have little horns on the um, front. And maybe so they made it for him on the off chance that there was another psychic that he needed to block his mind from, just in um, case the Americans happen to have a psychic? Well, uh, canonically, didn't Professor X make it for Magneto so that he could learn to trust, so he'd know that Charles never uh, was controlling his mind. Uh-huh. Uh, although, as I understand it, back during the Cold War, uh, the Soviet Union did a lot more research into uh, psychic powers than the U.S. did because it became like a source of ridicule over here. So there is some historical precedent for, for uh, Russian government to try and make a, a psychic uh, power-blocking helmet. Uh, so that might actually be uh, slightly more realistic than a lot of the stuff in this film. I don't know. I feel like I mean I feel like you don't really need to have a, like an historical precedent because Shaw is like, hi, this lady's psychic evidence. Um, so <laughs> Fair enough. Like he he knows they're psychics. It's not like the Russians need to be convinced that they're psychics, but it's just it's defense again. It's a really convenient defense that it's not entirely clear why he's prepared for that. I mean, I guess because the, the fact that Emma Frost exists means that you know there might be other. Psychics, or maybe so that he could feel comfortable that Emma Frost was not controlling his powers. Does it also seem strange brain. to anyone else that psychic powers seem to be sort of the most consistently repeated X Men powers? Like, there's so many telekinetics and uh, and psychics among well, you, like, mutants. but well, whereas know, like, nobody else has laser eyes. Well, Nick, the the brain is the biggest erogenous zone of all. <laughs> <laughs> You're telling me. On you, baby. <laughs> well, man, damn it! I was just about to say that. <laughs> yeah, my erogenous zone brain is so much bigger than yours. I got it out faster, so to speak. Um, so, actually, I, Nick has uh, has nipples that are like a foot across. <laughs> anyway. Sorry, uh, I'd like to erase uh, that image from uh, everyone's I have, I'll, I'll, I'll just I'll just dub over that. No, 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 no! I need to specify this. Is it my areolas, or is it my dimples? Are my dimples a foot long, or do I have incredibly long I will areolas? edit this Dealer's choice. I'll edit this, so every time you say Bro. nipple, you instead are saying Kevin saying Bacon. Kevin Bacon. <laughs> no, no. Um, every time I say nipple, I'm saying hated Christensen. Got it. Obviously. <laughs> so wait, are my hated Christensen uh, a foot long, or am I hated Christensen really wide? Now I have to replace that with, Hay- with uh, Hayden Pantier. For, for the record, uh, Derek, you had me say Hayden Christensen so that uh, we could uh, redo the end of Return of the Jedi, right? That was right. that was yeah, that joke came from. Okay. Yeah. okay, I just wanted to make sure. We moved away Sorry, from it. Sorry, was it too obscure a joke? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I obviously got it, but you know. <laughs> I thought you were making a Robert Shaw, Sebastian Shaw. I thought you were making a jumper reference. Um, <laughs> 
there was a jumper Aiden somewhere. Aiden Panettiere. Aiden Panettiere is the the Wolverine of the Heroes universe, right? And yeah. so far yeah, she as she has healing powers, powers. yeah, she's yeah. Okay. she is the Wolverine the of the Nashville universe. So, like, if she gets like a spike in the back of her head, she doesn't heal until the spike is taken out. Yeah, like her brain needs to be intact. Uh, oh, like uh, like Dracula in like House of Dracula, is yes. it where he's the skeleton he until they take the the stake out and then his body reappears? Yeah. Okay. Right. Um. So my my final thought as we wrap this up <laughs> is that in the first scene where we see young Xavier in his home, I was struck by the pan over what was clearly his bedroom. And seeing that, like all kids in 1940, 1941, whenever this was, he had uh, full uh, framed photographs of Einstein and Darwin on his side table. Yeah, obviously. Um, Excellent. Yeah. But yeah, I'm sure America was obsessed with Einstein yeah. in the early 40s. Everyone had Einstein mania. They had Einstein I- fever, which Einstein developed a cure to. I love that. Uh, it was really conveniently named. That uh, Charles is able to pinpoint that that Mystique is not actually his mother, not because he sees that this this his mother is wearing the same clothing that she is in this photo right here, but because his mother has never set foot in that kitchen in her life. Yep. and it's being way too nice to him. Yes. Uh, well, which begs the question. I, sorry, I know I misused that, Nick, and you're going to call me on it. Um, but it does raise the question, like. Okay, I, I get. I guess he is. He's a little psychic boy, but how hard mm-hmm. a sell did he have to put on his parents to say you should adopt this little blue girl that broke into our house? I don't understand why she is like f- with him at Oxford, but she has no motivations of her own. Like he's just been feeding her all these years, but she's gotten no like educational assistance, or she has no, no job advancement of her own. She's just. A waitress in in the bar near his college, like Oxford. <laughs> yes, she she moved to Oxford to be a uh, to be a waitress to to lay on his lap so that he could read philosophy at her when after she asks uh, whether he would ever date her. <laughs> um, I yeah, assume I, that when they were doing the let's adopt this little girl who broke in spiel. And she had she had adopted some sort of neutral appearance. Although I'm not sure that they ever officially adopted her, or that he ever even introduced her to either of his parents. She might just be living like in the crawl space under the house, or in one of the wings that they never go into, and he just brings her food all the time. Maybe she was constantly morphing into Charles. So like, oh, what are you doing? I thought you were downstairs. Charles, you're you're hungry again. Can Mystique only disguise herself as other people, or is she like Odo from Deep Space Nine and can like disguise herself as an end table? It's <laughs> a good question. What about animals? Does she look like a cat? It's a good question. <laughs> I immediately thought of Hermione uh, turning into half cat in the second Harry Potter movie. Oh, I was actually thinking of Professor McGonagall being a cat uh, in the opening of Harry Potter. Yeah. Well, both both uh, adequate uh, references. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was, I was, I was think, thinking I of Derek's any... wife, who used to be a cat. No, she still is, isn't Wait, she? She's not a cat anymore? Derek, she got sent, Derek sent me a picture of the wedding invitation that I had sent uh, he and Jenny, and the picture was of his cat looking very scornfully at the wedding invitation. <laughs> because, <laughs> because she wasn't invited. 
Wait, wait, wait. Oh. There were actually as a cat? Yes. I thought it was just his wife. I thought... I didn't know there was actually a cat involved. Cat wife. Uh, the <laughs> cat, cat wife. wife. Yes, the cat My wife. wife and I it, live, it would be a... It would be a My future cat. wife. Cat My wife future wife. Spin off of Catfish for people who, like, discover they're being tricked cat all the time and decide to just go with it and get married to the person who was tricking them. <laughs> That's uh, how cats operate. Just by tricking people on the Yeah, they're they're like uh, leprechauns that way. I missed leprechauns, and I don't want to go back and uh, find out. I'd rather live in the mystery. <laughs> What's mystery? Go play uh, with it. How leprechauns are like cat wives, or I don't know, something. <laughs> it uh, don't matter. No, 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 well, when they go into space, if you kill a cat wife and pee on it. The leprechaun will possess your penis and then burst out of it and hide you from home improvement. I feel bad. What like, part of I gave want to that know bone. the connection? Did you not hear? Leprechaun, <laughs> <laughs> do or die. Kill, kill, kill. Anyway, our next. So, how's your sex life? Anyway, <laughs> um, our next episode is uh, Captain America: The First Avenger. So, getting uh, getting back to Chris Evans because. I'm uh, kind of excited about that. No, no, I uh, hope I sincerely believe that this will be better than the other two films we've watched with Chris Evans in them so far. That's true. And probably better uh, than the uh, Captain America movie. Probably uh, better than that one, too. With I don't know. I don't know. Why don't how we just... Of, how much of First Avenger takes place uh, in Alaska? A little bit. <laughs> the the, fir- the, the biggest. The I don't know sing- where he crashes at the end. That might be Alaska. The single biggest um, thing I remember from that first film is the line where the Italian Red Skull is walking around a table where a bunch of people have just suggested that they kidnap and kill the president. Mm-hmm. And his response is, I have a better idea. Why, sounding exactly like Chico Marx, by the way. <laughs> Why don't we instead uh, kidnap him and use this. A robot mind control device I have just invented. Uh, I'd like to respond to Nick not knowing whether uh, Captain America crashes in Alaska at the end of First Avenger by saying that I don't think that any part of Alaska is the Arctic Ocean. <laughs> I, don't oh, think that, I think the, I think the, I the very northern part is. I, don't I think, think Alaska any, is entirely made up of land. I also don't think any part of Alaska is on the East Coast and accessible from Germany without flying over. <laughs> The rest well, of the United States. They're flying. They're flying from Germany across the Arctic. Fly over the pole. Alaska. Uh, yeah, I guess. Don't you remember that the Red Skull's plan is to bomb Juno? <laughs> He's gonna the most populated him. city in the United States, Juno, Alaska. His plan. Yeah. His plan was perfect. He was just misinformed about which targets were valuable. <laughs> it's like that. It's like that North Korean war that had Austin as one of its targets. Right. <laughs> There you go. So, uh, say goodbye to Anchorage.